0: Welcome to the Action Research Podcast. Somehow, the first podcast dedicated solely to action research. Each episode, action research experts Adam and Joe explore facets of this research methodology. Speaking with experienced and emerging action researchers, they aim to contribute to this important and growing field and understand the nuance and process of action research in action. The Action Research Network of the Americas is pleased to sponsor this podcast and invites you to be a part of their eighth annual conference, Co-Creating Knowledge, Empowering Communities, virtually this year with sessions throughout the month of June. Information about the conference can be found at arnawebsite.org conferences. Now, back to your hosts.
1: My name is Adam Stieglitz, PhD candidate at the University of Louisville, and also director and co-founder of the Andean Alliance for Sustainable Development, a social
2: change organization in the highlands of Peru. My name is Joe Levitan, an assistant professor and graduate program director at McGill University, as well as the co-founder and co-director of Centro Educativo Payatayu, a community-based learning center in the Peruvian Andes.
1: So we've got a great podcast for you today. I'm really excited about this conversation more than anything, because I expect to learn a ton. Today, our guest on the podcast is Dr. Patricia McGuire. Patricia published the groundbreaking workbook, doing participatory research, a feminist approach. She is professor emeritus of education and counseling, but has since repurposed after 25 years at Western New Mexico University at the Gallup Graduate Studies Center. While she was there, she co-founded and directed Peace Corps Fellows Program and has been quite active throughout her career. She's volunteered with asylum seekers on the U.S. Southwest border, marched and witnessed for social justice, worked with battered women, counseled high schoolers, led Girl Scout troops, and worked locally with a coalition to feed the hungry. Most recently, she has kind of taken a step outside of the norm within the realm of academia and decided to really make a solid move and publish all of her work on her website, which you can find at Patriciamaguire.net. You can find all of her publications and presentations. And more than anything, she is a family woman. Her family is her rock. She just celebrated her 44th wedding anniversary and has two remarkable daughters whom she deeply loves and admires. Dr. Patricia McGuire, thank you for coming on our podcast. How are you today? Good. Thank you for having me. It is our pleasure. We are really excited to talk with you today. We're going to drill you with our typical lightning round questions, which I think at this point, most of our listeners can expect. And then we're going to talk about how feminist theories fit within the action research paradigm. You know, we have some questions as well about how students or budding scholars who feel as though their research exists within the realm of feminism, you know, perhaps you have some advice for them. Does that sound good? Sounds good. So, do you mind just kind of kicking it off and telling us a little bit about how
3: you got into action research? Sure. I came to participatory action research at the Center for International Education in the mid 1980s. But what brought me there was I had been involved in development work through the Peace Corps, and I had been involved in high school counseling. And so I came to the Center for International Education, which at that time was really well known for non-formal education as an empowering process. It was known for transformative education, and it was a fascinating place because students, staff, and faculty governed the place. So we had a participatory democracy way of running the center. And we were very involved in, I guess you'd say, experiential education and education for empowerment. But there was a lot of examining so we're excited about participation in governance we were excited about participation in development projects in education but the research methodologies and approaches we were using and the evaluation processes were still i would say fairly traditional and at that time in the global south and also in the global north in the international development community There was this beginning movement, I guess it was in the sort of the mid-70s, in participatory action research. And, of course, there was another strand of action research in workplace democracy, but we were really becoming informed by participatory action research. And so there was a questioning and an effort amongst us to really look at how could we make our research practices congruent with our beliefs about participatory governance, participatory education. There was a professor, Peter Park, in the Department of Sociology who was involved in participatory action research, and a professor at the center, David Kinsey, who was really beginning to look at alternative research methodologies. So that brought me to the world of participatory action research. So in addition to being a doctoral student, I had about a 10-year period where I was doing international training work, experiential training, participatory training for adults. I, I was doing work in both West Africa and the U.S. And so I came to participatory action research via this route of participatory education, participatory governance at the center, and then activism work that many of us women at the center were doing. In the community around reproductive rights and so it's both that activism and that interest in participation and the people's rights to have a voice in education research what was going on in their lives that brought me to participatory action research
1: pat thanks for sharing that a lot of terms being thrown around as it relates to action research so i think it's a
3: perfect time for
0: it's time for a lightning round adam and joe have prepared some key questions for our guest The challenge is to answer them in the shortest amount of time.
3: You ready? I'm ready. Question one, what is action research? I think action research is is an approach to knowledge creation that intentionally combines knowing about with doing about. And so through cycles of research, you do research on action, you take what you learned, you apply it to your practice, And then you do more research on that. So it's sort of the cyclical approach to creating knowledge through doing.
1: Question two, given that, what makes good action research?
3: That I think is, is a little harder to answer. I think good or quality action research accounts for the multiple identities and positions of the researcher and the people who are involved. It not only attempts to in a very specific context and for very specific purposes, create knowledge to be used, but then it sort of scopes out and looks at how are the questions and approaches that you're using connecting to a a larger context. So I think good action research is, it's context specific, it's local, it's contextual, and it, it draws from the specific context and people you're working with. Question three, what are some common mistakes that you have seen in action research? This depends. We could talk on one side about some of the how-to mistakes. I think one mistake is impatience, where action researchers quickly want to solve or address an articulated problem. And I think sometimes it takes a while through some various cycles to get to what actually is the problem that we're looking at. So I think impatience, I think trying to sort of prematurely nail down a question because people feel very driven to know what their question is. On the flip side of that, I think there's a mistake of trying to be perfect and thinking that you're not going to make mistakes. I think that the nature of doing and the nature of doing action research is fraught with missteps and mistakes and all of those become opportunities for learning because there's a cyclical nature of of learning from doing. And I think if we step back from those sort of how-to, I think there's a mistake if action researchers don't look at and pay attention to and acknowledge how their own identities, their own positionality informs their work.
1: Question four, what does it mean to be reflexive
3: in action research? I would draw, I think, from the work of Wendy Frisbee and Colleen Reed, who talk about reflexivity as a way where we're trying to make explicit or visible what are the power relationships in an AR project and how do those inform or impact the project? So I think it's connected to a notion of being a reflective learner, reflecting on our practice, thinking about what we're doing. And I think reflexivity is a little perhaps more specific where you're really trying to make visible what the relationships of power are in the research process.
1: I have a fifth question here, but I want to lose our barriers for a lightning round and give you the opportunity to really kind of dive in however you will, because it's kind of a segue into the meat and bones of this podcast. So would you mind telling us for the fifth question, what is feminist participatory action research?
3: Feminist participatory action research or feminist action research is an approach to knowledge creation that essentially is informed by the feminist movement, by feminisms, and I put an S there because I think there's a plurality of feminisms. Feminisms is is a movement to understand and challenge oppressions and to understand the web of oppression of how gender, race, class, culture, ethnicity, religion, et cetera, physical abilities, how all of those things inform and shape people's lives, whether personally or structurally. And it's that movement, it's that set of theories about how the world works that then could inform participatory action research.
0: That brings us to the end of our lightning round. Now, back to your hosts.
2: One of the things that I started to realize when I was reading some of your work was how action research hadn't had those considerations inherently in it. Those needed to be added. One of the things that I was surprised to think about was, can you separate feminisms from action research now? And I don't know if that is just because of the particular lens that I take and the considerations that you've mentioned in some respects, in my experience, those considerations are now necessary and deeply ingrained. And and it sounds like it was a historical process to get there.
3: I don't think you can. I think one of the questions that you had floated at some point in our exchanges was, can you have action research without feminisms? So when I saw that question, I laughed and I said, well, you know, yes, there's gobs of it. There's tons of action research that isn't informed by feminism. However, I don't know how you could do research with people and not understand that everyone, men, women, are gendered, their race, their class, their culture. I don't know how you would do research of any kind that doesn't take into account in some way the research team and the people that you're working in, their multiple identities. How do you do that? Traditional social science has certainly tried to do it, to pretend that you have this detached social scientist who can know something better the further removed they are from it. But I don't know how you can think that people don't bring their identities and their multiple identities to the research process.
2: I totally agree. And you're right, like there's gobs of research out there that doesn't do it. But I'm just thinking these days, has it become centered or have these considerations become centered at least in the action research movement?
3: And that I think is not necessarily so. I think it depends what version if you will of action research is being promoted there's a lot of action research i believe at least i saw when i was in teacher education that action research can be promoted as this a theoretical set of techniques that are used to improve practice without understanding anything about the context the structure the positionalities of the researcher what's going on in people's lives so there's a lot of action research, I think, that's been promoted as some atheoretical set of techniques that you would sort of glom onto something to improve practice without trying to understand the context, the structure, the position of the people, what people bring to it.
1: So I have a follow up question, if you will. So from an epistemological standpoint. One of the points that you referenced a couple of times in in your articles is that the absence of women and feminisms and participatory action research can have implications on the social construction of knowledge. I thought that was a really fascinating perspective. And I was wondering if you could expound upon that a little bit, because I didn't quite grasp why. Do you mind... Sure. Talking
3: a little bit about that. Action research and, and participatory research historically promoted themselves as this liberatory transformative approach to knowledge creation. Well, if you're constructing social knowledge in a way that ignores women, their lives, or even men's gender, I mean, women aren't only gendered, men are gendered. And now we sort of recognize a much wider, diverse understanding of what does it mean for people's sexual identity, for their gender orientation. So it isn't just ignoring women. It also ignores, well, how do men do masculinity? So you have to have the look at the full range. It isn't only ignoring women. It's as if you ignore understanding of people's positions and identity and how structures shape those things, give privilege to some, oppress some. And if you're not, paying attention to those things, then, and you're saying that participatory action research would be this liberatory transformative approach to change the world. Well, we already got that world, thank you. We already have the world where we're not paying attention to multiple identity and oppression and justice. So it isn't only that women have gender, it's that men are gendered as well. And I think that one of the challenges is that the, in participatory action research, and I can speak probably more to that than sort of action research, teacher action research, is that the heavy lifting around looking at gender, race, and class have really come from feminists. And why is that so? How do you have something that's emancipatory and liberatory when you give half the people doing it a pass of not having to look at their own identity? Well, like i said we have that world thanks
2: that is a great explanation thank you for that and that really segues nicely into one of the questions that we had which is the role of reflexivity and one of the points that you highlighted that i think is really important is the idea that we need to think about our multiple identities and our positionality in ways that feminism has really spearheaded and what i was curious about is I, one of the things that really spoke to me when I was you know, in graduate school and a budding researcher was feminist methodologies and the need for taking into consideration you know, the multiple identities and figuring out what those multiple identities mean in terms of relationships with society, how society and those identities mutually enforce each other and sometimes create oppressive structures, sometimes privilege others because they come from different identities and how those interactions affect what it means to create knowledge, do research, what it means to have social justice, whose social justice is a big question that I think feminisms have really thought about in ways that have pushed fields forward. So that's a lot of preamble, but the question that I have is, what does collaboration look like and what does reflexivity look like when feminisms are incorporated into the process of participatory action research?
3: I think in a lot of ways that in the research process, if feminisms and themes that come out of feminism and feminist ways of operating, you would look at some different things, if you will, in collaboration. Who has voice? What mechanisms do you use in the research process to make sure that a a range of people in the research are able to express their voice? Who's silent? Who's not even at the table? Whose voices aren't even there? So That's one way of looking at issues of of voice and silence, of looking at what are the costs of participation? I mean, who, who gets to participate? One of the things historically in participatory action research that was harder for women than men to participate in development projects and development research was, well, women had a double and triple day. When you're doing the research, you're setting it up. How do you account for who's doing childcare, who's doing elder care, who works when? So there's all kinds of looking at people's everyday lives and the conditions of how they do their lives that one would consider if you were using a feminist framework, if you will.
2: How do feminist theories add to and constructively critique participatory action research paradigms?
3: Well, I think what they help us do is consider what's the worldview that the researcher and the research is bringing to the process. What's the worldview or the theories that explains why certain structures are the way they are? What's the worldview that explains why social relationships are the way that they are? How do those manifest themselves in the research, in the context that you're researching on? And so I think feminist theories add to that by looking at what is often ignored by other theories that have informed PAR. And that's looking at the positionality and the multiple identities of the researchers and the people they're working with and the context they're in.
1: So if it's okay, I'd like to take a step back because as I mentioned
3: earlier, one of the reasons I was really excited
1: about this particular podcast is because I knew I was going to learn a lot. And that stems from this like, I don't know, almost insecurity that I have when it comes to talking about feminism and feminist theories. I've been around this idea of feminism quite a bit, you know, through graduate school. Well, I support it in all ways that I possibly can. To some extent, I'll never fully be able to relate to it or understand it, right, as a white male. I mean, even talking about feminisms by making it plural like that <laughs> you know it throws me off right because it makes me wonder what am I missing here what you know what should I be identifying within this construct so that I don't say something stupid you know <laughs> like I, I worry about this so <laughs> I, I kind of yeah. wanted to just sort of back up to the nuts and bolts and like sure you know, we, we're talking about feminisms and I don't quite understand it frankly so well I pulled out a quote from Alice McIntyre in one of okay. in one of your publications Where you wrote that feminist scholars have challenged the assumption that there is a universal feminist perspective. Their work complicates any notion that feminism is fixed, monolithic, and/or predictive of women's lives. Hence, the idea of feminisms. (laughs) (laughs) So, for someone who's listening to this podcast, can you kind of break it down as far as what we're even talking about here with respect to feminism?
3: Sure. The reason that I came to use the term feminisms with an S is because there isn't a monolithic feminist theory. There's liberal feminism, Marxist feminism, ecological feminism, intersectionality feminism. There's all approaches. But what I tried to do in my work was to try to understand what were the common themes, if you will, that ran through feminist theories and feminist movements. So one of the common themes is that Women, regardless of their differences, face some form of oppression or devaluation as women. Okay, as women, and it it varies. It's contextually, historically, culturally bound. Like I started out uh, in development and kind of the women in development arena, and over time, that moved from women in development to gender and development, because part of what I think feminism helps us understand is that men and women are gendered. And it plays itself out both in our strengths and our oppressions. And I came to that particularly because I worked with battered women for so many years. In the battered women's movement, okay, we we needed allies. You have to have male allies because you're not going to stop violence against women if you don't also look at what's happening for men that promotes them to brutalize women in so-called love relationships. There's a term for it today, we talk about toxic masculinity, the ways that Socialization to certain masculine expectations and stereotypes is harmful for men. It's not only harmful for women, it's harmful for men as well. And so I think that one of the things that feminism helps us do is understand how people's gendered, raced, classed, how all their identities can help them have strengths and help them have assets, but also come with certain social stereotypes and limitations. I shifted from, I guess you'd say community-based participatory action research because I was really in a school of education and a satellite center, and I started teaching teacher action research. And of course, there were men and women in the class. And so we did a lot of work with helping not only the women in the class, but the men in the class understand how do you do gender? What does it look like? and looking at their own classrooms and say, well, what are the gendering mechanisms that are in place in your classroom? How do you treat the male students and the female students? Or or how do you account for the range of student sexual identities and, and gender identities? Because it's important in feminist action research for men and women, you know, and for people across that range, it's not just binary, but, you know, across the range of sexual orientation and gender identity, to look at, well, how do you do gender? What are the gendering mechanisms in your classroom? Or And, and I'm saying classroom because I worked for 11 years doing teacher action researching research and helping men and women teachers look at that. In fact, I came up with sort of a, a grid, if you will, of some themes that I thought that came out of feminisms and feminist action research that people might look at when they were doing an action research project. And in fact, I called it feminist informed action research because then it allowed people to go, well, I'm not a feminist, but okay. so you're not a feminist. That's all right. But let's look at what would feminist informed AR look like. So you you don't have to say you're a feminist. That's okay. But let's look at what feminist informed AR would help you look at as a teacher action research.
1: Okay, I'm going to hop in with a follow up question, actually.
3: One of the points that you make that resonates
1: with me is. This interpretation of feminism, which posits that women, despite differences, face some form of oppression, devaluation and exploitation. That resonates with me. One of the things that I'm not clear about when we're talking about feminism through a theoretical lens is, is that intended to help us understand and inform how we incorporate other marginalized groups that also face oppression, devaluation, and exploitation, whether it's based on race, ethnicity, class, culture, sexual orientation, or is it mutually exclusive, right? You've got feminist perspective and then there's other-
3: No, no, because what I, what from my perspective, what feminism includes is not only that women face some form of oppression based on essentially being women, but there's a web of oppression, there's a web of identities. We have multiple identities. We're also raced, we're classed, our nation's place in the international economic order, what our religion is, there are, all of those work together. And one of the things I think that comes out of, oh, the work of Bell Hooks, of Chandra Mohanty, of Kimberly Crenshaw's work today on intersectional feminism, it's this web of our identities. There's not necessarily a hierarchy of oppression but that how do these things work together to either give you privilege or not give you privilege? And for me, it's a comma that feminisms acknowledges that despite women's differences, they form some form of oppression simply by being women and that you're not only... Gendered, you have these other identities and, and they work together. I mean, we've seen that a lot in looking at what's happened with COVID. I did a presentation recently at my fellowship, the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship, and I looked at our Unitarian principles and feminisms and COVID. When you see how gender and race worked together, how devastating the economic implications of COVID were for women of color. In fact, there's a new term Moira Bailey talks about misogynoir. So not just misogyny, but misogynoir. So I think we have to look at these things together. What's the web? Because in many situations, like for many years, I worked in a native, primarily native community, Diné and Zuni, Navajo and Zuni. And in working with battered women in that community, we really had to understand The dynamics of that Native men were very oppressed, were very discriminated against in the community. And I think you see that in in the Black Lives Matter movement, that it isn't only that you have to look at not only gender, but race and class and positionality. How do those things work together?
2: If I might add, because I think that's really powerful and important how contexts influence those different identities and different spaces and places and and how those different interactions affect different people in different ways in these different contexts. It gets really complicated, but it's really important to understand that complexity.
3: And I think your nation's place in the international order. One of the things that uh, when I started talking about participatory action research and feminist action research, oh, I don't know, being invited to go place in the 90s almost always the first question would come from the audience would be from a man and would want to know essentially what right did i have as a, a white north american woman you know did i understand what was happening for women in the global south and it was sort of like you don't have to ask me turn and ask your sisters that you came with talk to the oh you didn't come with any no women from your organization came okay go home and talk to the women in your organization go home and talk to the women in your community oh, there are no women in your organization in leadership positions. Hmm, okay, well, go talk to the women in your community who are in leadership positions. There's not a place, I, I don't believe, there's not where there isn't some kind of women or feminist movement. And it is informed by specific place, specific context. And I think that's why I use the term feminisms with an S. We have to understand that it's contextually and historically bound.
2: Absolutely. So one of the things that I was really curious about too, was your experience over the years and what you have noticed that has changed over time. So since you wrote the important book, Doing Participatory Research, A Feminist Approach in 1987, are there things that you've noticed that have changed about either society or action research or participatory action research or teacher action research or feminist action research? And if so, what are they?
3: Well, there's a big, there's a big question. (laughs) Um, Which part of that I'm going to tackle rather than me answer that question. I would ask everybody who's listening as you're doing your action research and you're engaging in participatory research. How are feminist themes informing your work? Are you looking at issues of gender? Are you looking at issues of race and class? Are you looking at issues of voice and silence? Are you looking at power dynamics? If you are, great, we've had influence. If you aren't, well, there's still work to do. The proof's in the pudding. The proof's in what people are actually doing. And so for example, looking at your lightning round questions. You might ask a question of everyone who comes on to say, well, how do your multiple identities, your race, your class, your gender, inform your doing of AR? So it it has more people in a dialogue about how does that play itself out? Because by not asking it, by not focusing on that, it's assumed that, well, oh, oh, that's a side issue. That's the feminist action researchers over there. They get to tackle that.
2: So as a second part of that question, Have you noticed changes in society since you first started?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's still lots of work to be done. I grew up in the 50s and 60s when I I remember when my elementary school was desegregated. I, I can remember as a child going into, I lived in a beach community going into the city And there were department stores that had water fountains that had signs color white. So, oh yeah, there's been a lot of changes. There's been changes for women. There's been changes for communities of color. There's been changes for people in the LGBTQ plus community. There's been lots of changes and we still have work to do. I mean, I'm pushing 70 here. So I've seen a lot of change in society in my life. And I've seen a lot of change in academia and what gets discussed and what's in the conversation now, all of which are exciting, but it's like we can't ever let up. You can't ever stop asking, questioning, acting, raising issues because the minute you do, well, anyway, you can't.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And then to your point about asking questions, in terms of action research and reflexivity, one of the assumptions that I had about reflexivity is that it inherently asked those questions about identity and positionality and multiple identities and positionality and power. So do you think that reflexivity encompasses as a concept encompasses enough or should there be more focus on some of these issues?
3: No, I think it encompasses those because I think in some ways the notion of reflexivity, not reflection but reflexivity really comes out of the feminist movement. Mm-hmm. So I think it incorporates those. I think we're just called upon and compelled to keep asking those questions and keep considering those things.
2: Absolutely. I I think if you stop asking those questions, then you're not doing your job as an action researcher. So that makes sense. Or as a human person working to do something in the world.
3: Can I just ask you, Adam, because you raised some issues about essentially being somewhat tentative or afraid or concerned that you might, I, I don't know, maybe ask a question that didn't sounded stupid or that revealed you in some way and i wonder how are you now like what are you thinking in terms of the space to question what feminisms means what it might mean for you
1: i feel like i understand a little bit better what feminism is as it relates to action research and how we can be talking about it i mean i don't know why i have this like inherent fear about it. And I still do, right? Because it's a touchy subject. I often say I'm a director of an organization. My co-founder is also a white male. And sometimes I think that we can do a better job about being more inclusive as far as like, you know, when I hear you say, for example, like, who's the female leader in your organization? At the moment, we don't have one. When I hear something like that, and I feel like I could be doing something better. I just feel like I'm treading on water when you start having this. Like, you can hear me sort of stuttering, right? Because I don't know where to draw the boundaries. To give a little bit more context, I'm doing work here in Peru, in indigenous communities. And, you know, we talk a lot about how context matters. And it's interesting here because, well, on one hand, it's a very patriarchal society, and I know that there's elements of that that exists in indigenous communities around here. I also know that, you know, it's different. Culture matters. There are gender roles and dynamics in the community that we that I live and work in. And when when the topic comes up here, it, they don't look at it through a feminist or a sexist or a gender disparity way. They look at it as a way that like men have certain responsibilities. Women have certain responsibilities and collectively they move together forward you know there are a
3: couple of responses i I, I would have to that i think the culture discussion is always a fascinating one because cultures change and grow over time cultures aren't static culture changes and probably the, the best indication is having space for listening to indigenous women listening to women in peru listening to feminist-identified women in that context in culture? Because the culture question is a fascinating one. It, It can really be used to, I mean, look at issues of race. One could talk about the culture in the U.S. South, which became a way to harden racist institutions, et cetera. So it's always fascinating, I think, to look at who controls the conversation around culture and conceptualizing of culture as some hardened thing that doesn't change across time. Separate from that, I I guess what I I would encourage people who are listening, men and women, that all, all women aren't feminists. I mean, you know, there's a lot of women who are discriminatory in their own beliefs about other women and about certain practices. Whatever fight there is against oppressive conditions, people need allies. And feminists need male feminists, pro-feminists in the battle, the fight, the struggle, whatever you want to call it, to try to create a society where all our sons and daughters have access to the full range of human behavior, that our sons and daughters have full access to the full range of emotions, opportunities, benefits, privileges. It, It takes everybody to work on that. And so... Working in the the feminist movement isn't only work that women need to do. We need male allies.
1: Yeah, Yeah. certainly. And another realm in which I feel myself trying to figure out where I fit in is as an action researcher, right? Because I I agree with what you're saying. and As I'm actively doing action research, not just for my dissertation, but other projects within my organization, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have to be honest, I'm not making an explicit effort to consider a feminist perspective or look at the gender disparities. I think it's something that I can improve in, but I know how I feel about it. I support it, but I, I guess I haven't figured out exactly how to incorporate that intentionally into my work.
3: And it's interesting. I did a lot of work over a 10, 11 year period with teachers, male and female, and the the men, in the classes in the group of graduate students doing teacher action research were as equally called upon to understand how their identities as men race class culture etc but how their identities as men was informing their teaching and informing their work and therefore informing their action research and it's kind of new ground but it was very illuminating for for the guys and there's some you know, powerful pieces that some of them wrote in a book we did, laboring in the field of possibilities. And so I think a place to start for anybody is to look at how your own gender identity is informing you, your work. You know, how do you do masculinity? What does that look like? How do you do masculinity as the director of an agency? What what does that look like? And in the beginning, it might be something that you're Well, I don't know. I mean, I I think there's work once one opens oneself to the possibility that, you know, that it comes with the territory of exploring the full range of who we are as people and how our privilege, as well as our oppressions, how those impact who we are.
2: One of the things that I think is really important about feminism is, is that it is liberating for men as well, because it opens up when you do this kind of analysis, when you think about the overarching goals, which you said is the most powerful thing is allowing everybody to have the full range of human experiences and opportunities and privileges. One of the things that feminist analysis does is shows you how you're constrained by your own senses of masculinity or the social pressures of being a man and what that means and how that can be restricting too. So there's a sense that it is a liberatory for everybody when it is engaged in sincerely, because it is about emancipation from the multiple ways in which social and cultural norms restrict, in unhealthy ways, the ways that we can act, behave, feel, and think. I don't want to spin out into too, too much philosophical stuff, but you know, there are some ways that society has constrained our behaviors to support healthy behaviors in terms of how we interact, but there are other ways that society has constrained our behaviors that have been very unhealthy. And I think right. feminist analysis allows us to identify those
3: i mean one of the things that, again not to spin out too far but i just spent some time recently preparing and, and looking at this is when we look at how masculinity has hurt men in the covid pandemic when you look at the data of how many men die how how many men are in the icu etc and, and you look at some of the ways that masculinity if you will you know, not wearing a mask, refusing to wear a mask, you know, not going for health care till late. And you can look at other, certainly you can look at the conditions for people of color and how health conditions and community conditions have certainly um, impacted people of color disproportionately in the COVID pandemic. But I think we could look and say some similar things have happened for men and hence toxic masculinity that a, a lot of the expectations and, and societal stereotypes and narrow social ways of being a man don't work so well for men either, you know.
2: Yep, absolutely. And and that distinction, which is something that I learned from feminist theorists, is there's the identity in and of itself is just that identity. It's how that identity is constructed, manipulated, used to restrict or grant privileges to certain people. And one of the things that has happened through history is that white men in particular historically have had society work in their favor and have oppressed others, but that doesn't mean that the identity itself is an oppressive identity. It just means that that identity has enacted oppression throughout society on others. So that means that those people who embody those identities can change those behaviors and activities to be in alliance with others to make sure that there's liberation from those same oppressive structures that we have inherited through history. and these different processes.
3: Andrea Cornwall and John Gaventa, I think did some work on what they call pedagogy of the privileged. And it was, you know, essentially looking at how one might utilize the privilege that you have access to in an organization, an institution, or whatever, to open up greater space for other voices, other people, voices, not your own, um, and, and how in a sense you can use, utilize, expand the privileges you have so that more people have access to those.
2: It's awesome that you said that because that was actually my next question. So I was going to ask you about the way in which we can think through pedagogy of the privilege in action research. So I was curious if you would like to talk a little bit more about pedagogy of the privilege.
3: Well, for example, I worked in a, a university system. I was a director of a center. I had some voice and was able to use my voice and So when I fought for resources, I fought for resources for everyone, for the staff, not just the faculty. That's just a small example of how does one use the position that one has as a director of something, as a whatever your position is in an organization to fight for resources, fight for a place at the table, fight for more inclusion for those who don't have the same privilege that you do. I'm thinking of an an action research project I had. Alyssa Fitzpatrick was working as a teacher in the the Pueblo of of Zuni, and she ended up doing a teacher action research project with students that she had in an alternative school. And uh, at some point, she said, I realized that I was trying to help the girls use their voice more, but I wasn't helping the boys look at how did they dominate airtime. And she said that one of the things that her feminisms did for her was help her look and say, well, wait a minute. It's not just about changing girls in the classroom. It's also about helping the classroom as a whole look at you know, who has airtime, who uses it, who gets heard. So I think that whatever position that we're in, how we might use the privileges and the benefits of our position to open up space and benefits for more people.
2: And one of the things that you mentioned that really resonates with me is the role of listening and learning how to listen. And I think that especially with folks who come from privileged backgrounds or have privilege in certain contexts, learning how to listen and hear and do both is really important and not interpret what somebody's saying through their own gendered or positionality lens. You have to do that, but recognizing it so that you understand how to create interpersonal understanding and not recreate oppressive structures by misinterpreting or misunderstanding. And I think there's still more that we can learn. And there's some interesting research out there about the how people listen and what listening is. I was introduced to through feminist theories and kind of the gendered role that listening used to have or still has in many ways, and how that is a really important skill for anything social justice related
1: This stuff, it makes sense. There's no doubt about it, right? I guess another area that's a little bit gray for me is what does it look like in practice? The sort of practical side of feminism and like as action researchers, what are the ways perhaps Pat in the field that working in active action research projects, like what are the sort of practical skills, tools, approaches to working with communities that are oppressed where you actually do start to liberate these marginalized groups um, so that they are recognizing their role, whether it's as marginalized within their race or ethnicity or class or gender, to actually start to make advancements to a more equal playing field.
3: I think I'm going to draw from the work that I, I did with battered women and the work that I'm trying to do a participatory action research with battered women. And I think there are a lot of practical things in my website. I think I have some pretty practical uh, things that people might look at when they're trying to figure out how to bring a feminist lens to action research. And I'm thinking about that in order for people to have greater voice and raise their opinions or raise their issues, you have to create specific spaces and processes for that. And one of the challenges I think sometimes that we have in action research is bringing in just group facilitation skills of people learning how to work with groups to use particular skills and strategies that give people airtime, that create ways that everybody gets to talk or whoever wants to talk gets to talk. So I think they're action researchers could benefit from and learn from some of the very traditional strategies of group process and group facilitation and those are used a lot also in I don't know adult education and community education and participatory education so i think that that's a very practical thing that people can do is learn and utilize some of those skills for working with groups that help create space for more people to have a voice. I mean, people have to hear their voice in a space to become comfortable to use it. So there are a lot of, I don't know, things as simple as icebreaker activities and things that get a group going. For example, if one was going to look at, I think, voice and silence, how do you create specific opportunities, structured opportunities to invite people into conversations, to invite people into the group? And that's a skill set. That's a skill set that can be used in any kind of action research, in any kind of collaborative work. It goes back to what you were saying about collaboration. And those are skills and strategies that we can teach and practice in the classrooms or the training programs where we're teaching people how to do participatory action research or action research.
1: I just want to um, re- reiterate that anybody that's interested, I would imagine you sa- you mentioned that you have these sort of resources on your website. Anybody can go. It's open source, right? Patricia McGuire. Oh,
3: absolutely. I mean, I think there's only two things that aren't open source. Uh, one is the book traveling companions because I don't own it. I can't you know, put it all out there and there might be one other thing.
2: It's the democratizing knowledge calls. Vanessa has a question related to what you were talking about is part of the work first developing the skills yourself, or does context have a major impact on your approach in terms of what that work is?
3: You know, no matter what strategies, techniques that you use, they're always employed in a particular context with a particular group. And you learn about that group or you train local people to use those skills. So I, I think they always get used in a specific context. And there might be locally appropriate ways of doing some of those things, but also expanding. Traditional meetings might look a certain way, but then there's an opportunity to shift, well, to blend in, to move in, to use in some other, what might be non-traditional ways of who gets to talk, who gets airtime, how we go around a circle and get more people to participate, how we invite people in.
2: Yeah. And I think from my perspective, too, one of the things that this kind of skill work requires is an ability to know, to have like a toolbox of different skills, and then also know which tools are appropriate for which context. I use that metaphor a lot when I teach about leadership, and I think it's relevant too for action research developing those skills oneself allow you to understand the interplay of contexts and your positionality and your identities in that space so that you can maneuver within those, becoming aware of where you are in that space and where your power lies and and where it might not. So I have a question. What are the initial steps that an emerging action researcher should consider when engaging with a feminist paradigm in action research? So the practical questions that one should ask?
3: In the teaching resource section, I have a PDF called Feminist Informed AR. And on slides 25 through 31, there's sort of a series of questions that one might ask oneself. And these were developed for teacher action researchers that one could ask of the research. And so, for example, there was some questions on gender. And I asked People that they might look at, well, how are gendering mechanisms at work? And in this particular context, it was in the classroom related to people's AR topic. And I asked them to consider things like student airtime, who gets attention, do students get attention based on the sort of quality of their work or their effort, what tasks are given to who, what curriculum is used, what materials are in the curriculum that might speak to the range of children's and youth's gender identities. I asked people to, as teachers in the Action Research Project, to look at what some of their expectations were of students based on gender socialization. Was gender a category in data collection and analysis? Because some people hadn't even thought about, oh, gee, I, I really ought to look at what's happening for the boys, what's happening for the girls. In relationship to let's say, power dynamics. I ask people to pay attention to what were some of the power dynamics at work in their school or their classroom, and if they could reframe their understanding of power as their own power as an educator, their own power in the classroom. If you look at issues of voice and silence and difference, pay attention to in an A- the Action Research Project, of how were students and their families' voices included? And could you use different strategies or mechanisms that might include and help reach out to families and students in different ways? Were there spaces for students' voices in the project? Were there spaces where there are silencing mechanisms at work in the classroom or the project? Could they use different formats or different strategies to? in a sense, collect data? Could they use not just surveys and questionnaires, but inventories, photo voice projects, art? Were there other ways that they, a range of ways that one might get greater student voice and voices of their families in the project? So those are some of the things. I think I'll stop there, but I don't know, Adam and Joe, if that gets to some of the practical kinds of things you might be looking at.
1: Oh, yeah. I think it's as practical as it gets. Thank you so much. But just one quick question. That's obviously pretty narrow in scope towards the classroom setting and or the school and educational setting. Would, is, would those carry over equally to oh, Teachers working in communities, organizations? Sure. Or?
3: I mean, if you're looking at, uh, I don't know, an organization that's having meetings, you can ask some of the same questions mm-hmm. or that's doing training. You can ask some of the same questions of the meetings and the trainings who gets to speak? How is airtime used? How do you create? What strategies do you use to make sure that more people get to essentially participate in the participatory action research? So it comes down to, I think, really looking at participatory strategies. And we can really pull heavily, I think, from the whole participatory training world or community training, community development. There are so many various strategies for working with people in communities. Photo voice can be a great way. Community mapping, asset mapping. I mean, there's just this whole range of strategies one can use in a community, an organization, a community group, a classroom to, in fact, get more voices, more people's input or the people you're looking for into the process.
1: So maybe one final question. This has been such a great discussion. What I was going to ask was essentially, in your opinion, where do we go from here? Vanessa was wondering, what are the major gaps in the field? And I, I thought it was a great question for somebody who's been involved for so long. So what do you think is the next logical step as it relates to the areas of focus that you know we should be researching, incorporating participatory approaches as it relates to feminist research or methodology or theory? What's next?
3: I realize that I'm really not as concerned anymore about whether we scale up action research because I think a lot of action research is contextually bound, it's local, it's in specific organizations. We can learn from certainly other projects and and bring that in. But I think that the sort of ongoing battle, if you will, in action research and participatory action research is to prevent it from becoming some atheoretical set of techniques that somebody does to understand practice or to improve practice without understanding how that practice is connected to structure, social justice, resources, who gets what. I think that's my greatest fear. And I saw that happening a lot in the teacher action research world is that it becomes some atheoretical disconnected set of tools.
2: I have two follow-up questions from Vanessa. Her question is, how can you talk about or observe gender without making assumptions about gender identities? Uh, Since it's so complex, wouldn't it require a lot of front-loading reflexivity that takes time relationship building and things like that?
3: I think it goes across time. I think an important thing to say that if uh, action research and participatory action research come from a premise that knowledge is created in the context of relationships, that relationships take time across time. And I think the first onus would be on the researcher, him or herself to do some work to understand how their own gender identity, their own sexual orientation, that lens or, or that they bring to the project. And I think sometimes in settings, depending on what they are, you can help people look at that themselves. Look, look at situations like that. Certain parts of, of their own identities, you can help them look at that and how that's influencing the work that they're doing. Does that get <laughs> to Vanessa's issue?
2: Yep, she's getting the thumbs up. <laughs> Her second question was, So as a researcher, you can do a lot of reflexive work to understand your own intersecting identities that shape your approach and interpretations. Is that enough work in and of itself, or is there some other thing that you need to do to really understand some of these issues?
3: Think of it as sort of action research as a cycle and you do research on something and then you apply what you learn to the next cycle. I think that action research implores us, the field itself is premised on the fact that knowing and doing get combined. So it isn't just enough to know, we have to try to take what we know and apply it and then learn from that. And so while it's certainly a step to examine one's own positionality, identities, then of course you have to see, well, how does that impact the work? How does it impact the doing? The purpose isn't just to know it's to do differently because we know and by doing differently we learn new things which is scary oh my gosh is that scary you know you have to take risks you have to willing to fail you have to willing to make mistakes and i think there was an earlier question about what are some of the mistakes that action researchers might make or something like that and i think as one is is holding your being paralyzed by perfection you know, you have to be sort of willing to make some mistakes, to try things, see where they go, learn from them, but in an intentional way. You know, it's not like, oh, just anything goes, but OK, I did this. These things happened. What accounts for that? How might I do it differently the next time?
1: Pat, this has been a real pleasure and it's been so informative. Thank you for sharing your experiences with us, your knowledge, all the practical contributions that you have to the field I really love the way that you set up your website, by the way. And I highly recommend that really anybody in the realm of action research goes and checks it out, patriciamcguire.net. And I hope more people start to follow your lead on that one and start, you know, this, this knowledge and information is so important. And for it to not be shared is such an injustice. So thanks for taking the lead on that. And just for the work that you do, it's really so important. I think I can speak not only for myself, but for Joe and the whole team, Vanessa and Sheka, you know, I think this was a really powerful episode.
3: Oh, this has been very exciting. It, uh, I, I mean, I don't in my daily life get to have too many conversations anymore with people around participatory action research. Although I will say that having put my website up and out there, I'm having more conversations and more interactions with people. So that's been um, exciting. Uh, so I've learned from it as well. And I appreciate that. Thank you for, for the interaction and the dialogue.
0: How have you found yourself in the world of action research? Want to be interviewed or share one of your projects? Engage in interactive dialogue with Joe, Adam, and other experts and listeners in the community on Twitter at the underscore AR pod or the Action Research Podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast on most major podcast distribution platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Action Research Podcast, created by Adam Stieglitz, Joe Levitan, Shikha DeWalker, and Vanessa Gold. See you next time.